This is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and I'm here with the Libertarian, Professor Richard Epstein. Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and is a Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Now, Richard, it's our end of the year podcast. I'd like us to do a bit of a retrospective on some of the biggest issues of the year and, well, maybe look ahead to next year. Um, when I look at 2022, Richard, I think about free speech, not necessarily as much about government coercion of free speech, but free speech issues at universities and at major companies, especially like Twitter. Now, Richard, I'd love to know your take on some re recent Elon Musk uh, drama going on. I mean, Elon took over and there has been, I would say, a, a, a just a back and forth of a lot of different rules, people getting kicked off, uh, accounts being suspended or brought back onto Twitter. And I think I'd like to know what you think uh, Twitter might look like in next year. Are they going to figure out some consistent, clear rules on free speech? Do you think Elon's going to have some sort of jurisprudence, some sort of philosophy in place? Or do you think we're in for, well, Twitter and you can go to every other uh, social media uh, site like Facebook or Meta or the rest of them. Um, and are we going to have just, I guess, constant fights about what you're allowed to say on, on each platform? Well, I think it's going to be a very bumpy ride. And the reason it's going to be a bumpy ride is all of these organizations that once thought themselves invulnerable find themselves in various kinds of trouble. Uh, part of the trouble is financial. The stock of every one of these major corporations is tanked. And that means that they're losing viewers to somebody. And uh, when that happens, they have to worry about their ad streams and everything else. And so a kind of a shakeup in terms of the way in which you put yourself together may be required for simple business reasons wholly apart from the First Amendment. The second complication that comes in there is it's looking more and more to be the case as though there was intensive involvement by the Biden administration over the last near two years um, with the various sites on whom they should promote and whom they should dock and all the rest of that stuff. And the moment those things become credible, it's no longer a question of a private enterprise doing exactly what it did. It's now a question of a government actor doing something which may be subject to First Amendment kind of constraint. At that point, somebody's going to say, okay, if they manage to violate things, what are we supposed to do in order to fix that? Uh, so you take somebody like the J. Bakhtatari, you know, whom we both know and works very closely at Hoover, and there's an announcement that what Twitter did was essentially slow down his ratings so that he could not peak or trend on the site in an effort to try to reduce his influence with other people. Now, if you're doing this at the aid of the government in order to make Mr. Fauci and his allies look better than might otherwise be the case, it's a very, very serious sort of thing. Uh, but I don't see what private remedy he's going to have or any that he would want to pursue. And so then the question is whether or not there's going to be somebody who says engaging in this kind of activity is some kind of an improper form of behavior. And so then you start thinking about whether there should be a civil or a criminal investigation taking place of these folks. Uh, this gets you into the following deep irony. It's not going to come from California because uh, Mr. Gavin Newsom is too close. And it's not likely to come from the federal government because it turns out that the Justice Department is 
in the hands of the Biden administration. And so my guess is what will happen is it will come from various kinds of newspaper revelation. And these will not be without consequence because I think what happens is the lack of credibility in these organizations will in fact lead to a reduction of their influence, sale and power. Um, if you take a look at the stock of all the tech companies, uh, given the fact that they've been constantly brutalized and beaten to a pulp by the Biden administration and by some state governments, they're all down between 25 and 75 percent. And that immediately changes everything. As to Mr. Musk, I mean, it's a policy du jour, it's a revelation du jour. Um, it's quite clear that he's a very erratic sort of man and uh, a little bit like the queen of spades, off with your head is a word that he's prepared to utter very commonly under these situations. He fires people for revealing what he regards as private and confidential information. He publishes and releases information which indicates some of the serious irregularities that happen with respect to the government. Uh, there are gonna be consequences, both positive and negative from this. Uh, but if you ask me to predict what's going to happen, I don't have the foggiest idea of what the next year is going to look like, because I don't know what his next move is up the sleeve. It's quite clear that you know, he works with people like Barry Weiss at Subspac. And when they start publishing this kind of information, it makes you cringe about how craven the whole situation turns out to be. But there's going to be enormous pushback about all of that stuff. And so what I think you're going to see on that front is a battle royal. There may well be a lawsuit that's coming down the road, but I could not even tell you who is going to be suing whom for what. It's just simply hold on to your hat, watch this thing go, and ask the following question. What's going to be the market value of the Twitter stock uh, by the time this thing comes to some kind of a arrest? In my guess, it will be worth a small fraction of what it is today. And I don't know whether or not the uh, our good friend Musk is going to be happy about this when his other companies are losing money, thinking that the political uh, payback that he's going to get from this thing, his own views of the world, are more than compensate for the economic loss. And it's going to be a billion dollar hit. So I'm going to sit down like everybody else and be a spectator. I have no inside information. I don't want any inside any information about all of this. And I have no idea as to where this thing is going to go. Uh, there's a surprise a day, and I suspect tomorrow will bring another one. Well, let's shift gears, I think, enormously over to the Supreme Court, because there's yeah. well, there's a lot to talk about um, that happened in 2022. Um, obviously, Dobbs comes to mind. There are many, many other cases. But I would like to know from you what decisions that uh, were decided in 2022, or at least have been argued looking forward to 2023, um, do you think will have the longest legs, the longest impacts? I mean, some cases happen and you go, OK, well, I guess that's just the ruling now, but then there are others like Dobbs that are leading to fights throughout states. So can you can you walk me through a couple that um, yeah, we're well, going to be talking I, about I next th year? I think the Dobbs thing is going to play itself out relatively quickly um, in this situation. What happens is it was not as though they created a new constitutional right to resist legislation. What they did is they invited legislation to take place. And that legislation is already taking place and much of it's at the federal level. And so you have Justice Thomas announcing views that he's held for many years that he doesn't think substantive due process is the sort of rights on gay rights or on anything else. And then you get the Defense of Marriage Act going through Congress, proving once again that when it comes to politics, the uh, LBG movement is one of the most powerful in the United States, and, and it gets its kind of way. Uh, but where do they go for an encore is not clear. Uh, the case that will decide that is the one that was just argued, which is the 303 Creative. And the issue that you have there is 
is not the question as to whether or not you can have voluntary associations between gays and lesbians or anybody else on marriage or anything else. It's the question of compulsory speech. Can these organizations decide to rein in those individuals who refuse to cooperate um, in one shape or another with any kind of a gay or lesbian type of relationship? And that case was just argued in the Supreme Court. Uh, there has been an absolute uniform string of cases up to this date, which have said that the interests of the anti-discrimination law are said to trump the interest of individual freedom of speech and so forth. If you start looking at the way in which that case came out, uh, my reasonably confident prediction is that the liberals have overplayed their hand and that what's going to happen is they're going to say, yes, this is compulsory speech. Uh, it's pure speech. Uh, this is uh, applies no matter what the particular topic is. Show me your justification. If you look at the 10th Circuit, the only justification that they could argue, articulate was it's a control of monopoly. And what's the definition of monopoly? A single firm in a highly competitive industry with a somewhat distinctive product. That's a sort of standard form of competition that we always get. They want to call it a monopoly. And the argument just died on the vine. It was never raised again in the Supreme Court by anybody. Uh, so what happens is you have the admission from below uh, that this was pure speech and you have nothing to justify it. So my guess is this case will go the other way. And then the issue is if you're making a wedding case, is this pure speech or is it pure speech plus something else so that you're going to argue the question as to how broad this thing particularly goes. Uh, but in my view, once the sales gets taken out of the anti-discrimination laws in these particular cases, all the other forms of expressive activities will be regarded as speech. I could write on a wedding case just as I could write on a wedding cake as I can write on a, a website. And there's nothing you said on the other side. The liberal arguments on this case were really stunningly weak. What they try to do is not issue a justification, but they wanted to say, you know, it's not this lady who's doing this stuff at all. It's all her customers who are filling in the blanks on the various forms, and they're allowed to do that. So there's no free speech claim. The problem is it's utterly inconsistent with everything that was found in the record where everybody said she tries to create a creative kind of experience. That's the title of her situation. And she thinks that every nuance starts to matter. And for the Supreme Court to try to say all the findings that were done down below are irrelevant in favor of our rather strange view of the situation, I think it's going to fail. It's going to be 6-3. I can't say I, I welcome this extremely. I've always thought that there's a vast difference between allowing people to voluntarily get together in either commerce on the one hand or in marriage and another, and their effort to commandeer other individuals to give them service. It's also the case, by the way, that nobody wants the service. What they want to be able to do is to punish people who don't supply the service. So remember what the pattern was in the Phillips case, uh, the masterpiece cake situation. You go into the baker, said, I'd like to have a cake. You know full well that he's not going to make it for you. He will refer you to somebody else. What you then do is send a complaint off to the Colorado Commission and go about getting your wedding case somewhere else. And so what happens is it's all a setup. Uh, they had no business to go there. And the question that I always put to people, and I'm still waiting for an answer, uh, there have been thousands upon thousands of gay weddings, events, and so forth in the United States in the last 10 or 15 years. Tell me one where the services were not provided in a voluntary market. And then I will start to believe that there's a problem. One of the tragedies is, is the way these groups organize themselves publicly is they're always marginalized individuals at the periphery of the political process where somehow or other people 
people like Jack um, Phillips and a few other evangelicals are at the middle. Of course, that's not true. These are the most powerful organizations in the world. They are powerful where there's an anti-discrimination law in place, and they're powerful in places where it's not. And I think what really happens is to note what the political realities are in this particular situation, mean that you cannot defend these statutes as trying to help marginal people get a grip in what's going on. All you need to do to see how powerful this movement is, is type the words LBGT wedding and see the incredible number of sites that come up. They're not going anywhere soon. And I think everybody should understand that. And I think it's just a terrible, terrible mistake uh, to start to say that we have to do this to protect a precarious minority, a discrete and insular minority from the oppression of a dominant group. They are the dominant group. And I do not think that they should be able to pretend otherwise. One more Supreme Court follow-up, and that would be affirmative action. I need to ask you this because you've been an educator for a very long time at several universities. So I would like to know, you know, we, we've talked about the cases a little bit, Harvard and, mm. um, and over in North Carolina, some dealing with private and public schools. What does the future of admissions look like? Um, is it going to change at Dull for at, at NYU? Well, I mean, NYU, I'm sure everybody at NYU, like everywhere else, is thinking what's going to happen if this starts to come. Uh, the lawsuits, in fact, um, leave me extremely uncomfortable in both directions. Um, in general, I am strongly against having any form of anti-discrimination norm applied to universities, and I think they should be able to go to hell each in his own direction. And so that means at a kind of a gut level, I'm sort of sympathetic with Harvard's ability to do these things, although I regard myself as strongly opposed to the sort of policies that they put into place, they seem to go overboard. Uh, my view about affirmative action programs is I've run them, I plead guilty to that, I think I know how to do it, and what I I would do is completely different from the way in which it takes place at Harvard or UNC or in the California system. Uh, one of the great tragedies about this is we don't seem to have a middle position. If you think back to uh, what Bill Clinton said years ago, he said, what I want you to do is to mend it, not to end it. Uh, but it turns out mending is a very, very difficult middle position to take. And I think, in effect, if you actually start looking at the argument and so forth, the key person to understand in this is, is Chief Justice Roberts, who's normally thought to be at this point probably one person to the left of center, that is the median justice would probably be Kavanaugh, and the other conservatives are to the right of him. But he has long taken the position on affirmative action that the way to end uh, racial discrimination in the United States is not to practice racial discrimination in the United States. So he is a deep opponent of the notion that we're supposed to do this for a short term until everything turns out all right. Historically, it's clear that he's correct. Uh, the problem is much more endemic in terms of its difficulty than one might suppose. If you try to go through and look at the pool of applicants on these cases and figure out how you would populate either the colleges on the one hand or the law schools on the other, uh, with applicants who have roughly equal strength with the Asian and white students who get in, the pool is simply too small to sustain that. So either you have some kind of an affirmative action program, or you're going to find law schools completely transformed in terms of the number of various minority groups they have. Certainly true about African-Americans, probably true about American Indians. The Spanish category is completely heterogeneous. And so it may well be that you will get white uh, Argentinian Jews who, in fact, are native Spanish speakers 
uh, filling in those quotas, but you're not going to start dealing with people whom you would think to be more underprivileged Hispanics coming from Mexico or other sorts of places. Um, I don't think there's an easy way in which to do this. Uh, you're already seeing people trying to find ways to do it in something. Uh, the decision made in connection with many law schools not to require the LSATs as a condition for getting into graduate school. Similar things with the undergraduate is the fewer fixed metrics you have in dealing with this situation, the more flexibility you get, but the less reliable class that you're going to get coming out of this. And I think what's going to happen is that the uh, guaranteed rate of getting in is going to become, there's nobody, uh, the exclusion rate is going to be very slow, uh, slow, they're going to have a, a low sort of minimum threshold to get above it. And then once you get above that minimum threshold, uh, you pick on the basis of whatever you think to be the case, and you deny that this is done on a racial basis, at which point then somebody's going to come back and say, well, let's look at the scores, let's look at this, and let's look at that. And nobody knows the way in which these things will come out. The great tragedy is if you look at American universities, put side Richard Epstein, you know, turning 80 soon, uh, virtually every major university that I'm aware of has a huge emotional and political investment in some form of equity and, and, and diversity and inclusion. And if they're being forced on a dime to change this, it's just not going to be a very easy thing to do. I would not be even surprised to see, oh, they're going to try a constitutional amendment. But here again is part of the problem. The large public, by and large, is not sympathetic uh, to the level of affirmative action that we have in these private institutions. Uh, but the people who run these institutions and own them are very sympathetic to these diversity programs. But it's going to be very difficult to get a political solution if the Republicans are controlling one House of Congress and the popular sentiment on affirmative action is, say, something like 60 to 40 against that particular program. And so I think it's going to be a very rough sailing for everybody. And, uh, you know, I'm extremely confident in my proc prediction. I have no idea what's going to happen because I don't even see the next move that's coming down the way. It's going to be a very painful sort of a process that's going to take place, and there's not going to be any easy accommodation that's going to go without a challenge. Last story to think about for 2022, and that would be former President Trump. Now, I almost wonder if this is the last year that President, former President Trump could be one of the bigger stories in the year. And I ask that because, well... I, uh, well, we haven't discussed the the uh, appointment of Jack Smith as a special prosecutor in the Mar-a-Lago uh, case uh, having to do with classified documents. And so I guess I'm asking, Richard, are we ever going to see any actual real legal consequences for Donald Trump for probably not January 6th? That seems to fall to the people who went inside the Capitol. Um, perhaps Mar-a-Lago, perhaps the Georgia phone call, considering Senator Lindsey Graham is being forced to testify to a grand jury. That's still ongoing. I mean, anything could happen, right? He could be indicted, but without any consequences. Will there be consequences here? Yeah, I mean, look, the first thing I think is the Republicans or the Democrats both face the following question. Is Donald Trump the front runner in the upcoming 2024 uh, race for the uh, Republican nomination? Uh, six months ago, people would have said yes. Uh, right now, everybody seems to be saying no. I looked around to find people who actually want to support Trump. And this is a very typical statement that I got from a fairly prominent uh, Republican intellectual. 
I thought that Donald Trump was the greatest president since George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. And I want him to take a one-way trip to some tropical island so I never have to see him again as long as I live. Um, what they're saying, in effect, is the 2016 was 2016, but you butchered 2018, 2020, 2022. You're no longer the guy that you were. It turns out that you're making these ridiculous statements, that there are all sorts of disconnects. Every time you manage to speak in front of a rally to get 10,000 people to love you, there are a million people who watch this thing, put their head on their shoulders and say, never again. And so if you start looking around, I think already DeSantis is ahead of him. And my guess is that it will probably be uh, either him or some other credible Republican candidate. And then the issue is, do the Democrats want to indict a president who's not going to be the nominee in any event? Well, it's a safer thing to do to some sense. Uh, but on the other hand, you start looking a little bit petty and a little vindictive. And what may happen is it shows that you're a breaker of these kinds of traditions and being a breaker of these kinds of traditions, uh, you ought to be punished. I'm going to say this categorically. Um, when Donald Trump was president, I don't think he did anything that I would qualify as sort of illegal. He did not fire people before the ends of their particular terms. His executive orders were generally more circumspect. He didn't conduct phony indictments of various people. The Democrats have him beaten spades and everything that they've done uh, starting in 2016 and going forward to the president. Uh, so it is ironic that the party which is guilty of the greater number of trespasses is the one playing the moral song. Um, but I think the public is going to start to see through with that. Their attitude about Donald Trump will be um, whatever we thought about him then, we don't need him now. And so if we liked him, we don't want him. And if we didn't like him, we certainly don't want him. So just please scram. I think he's going to probably be forced in some sense or another to pull out of this thing. And then what happens is the Republicans should have a primary amongst themselves. I would be strongly opposed uh, to any Republican effort to have everybody run against everybody else at the same time they're bashing Trump, because that's the only way in which he could survive with a small majority and becoming a hopeless nominee. What the Republicans have to do is they have to get him out of the platform as quickly as possible in the most emphatic way. And if the Democrats realize that having Jack Smith sick him on something or other is going to bring him back some degree of a sympathy vote, they won't do it. Um, look, I think that appointment was a terrible appointment to begin with. It showed no signs of independence. You brought somebody in who's a known political it's kind of really strong, headstrong, dangerous, sort of overly aggressive prosecutor. That's not what you want. Uh, the oversight that Merrick Garland could exercise over this is extremely dickled difficult to determine the restraints on what he can do. There are lots of freedoms that Jack Smith has. Uh, this is a bad move all around. And, you know, my general conclusion on that level is that if you actually start to think really hard about it, uh, the real great disappointment is that Merrick Garland has been a very weak attorney general who does not seem to be able to establish the independence of his office and doesn't want to establish that. And so, in fact, if you start looking at the Biden cabinet, they all seem to be a bunch of yes people, uh, one kind or another, which is a bad sort of sign. I do think, in effect, that in many ways, the issue that's most likely to come up in the next year is going to be less to do with the things that we're talking about and more with the possibility that there's a genuine kind of recession that's likely to take place uh, because we are pushing too hard on the environmental front, too hard with respect to the securities law, too hard with respect to the antitrust laws, too hard with respect to everything. And it is not the case when you sort of rattle these particular savers that the capital markets don't pay any 
any attention to that. And so if you look at the way in which the tech sector has been beaten to a pulp, you realize in effect that's a consequence of these political campaigns. And if you see the improvement in the energy sector with Exxon and Chevron leading the way, uh, the reason they've done so well is my friend Mario Loyola said, we are so hostile to fossil fuels that we've created a de facto monopoly for these companies so they could raise their prices. Well, you got it wrong both ways. One market's going up artificially and the other market has declined artificially. The Biden administration will not be able to rest on the uh, sort of general notions of Janet Yellen that this is the best of all possible world. I think the thing that she wrote in the Wall Street Journal will be regarded as delusional in a very short period of time. Uh, so uh, the problem that the Democrats are going to have, they're going to go into 2024 if they're not careful under a set of circumstances where, in fact, the economy is going to do badly and they're going to be the only ones who will own it. You've been listening to the Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Make sure to read Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, published on Defining Ideas at hoover.org. If you found our conversation thought-provoking, please share it with your friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. We'll talk to you next year. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcast or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.